1: Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14.
0: Well, we are entering the Word of God, so let's do so always with prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for this time together. And Father, we would just pray that you too would be with us, that your Holy Spirit would open your word to our hearts and lives, that we might grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and King. As we commit this evening and ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Amen. Well, we are exploring what's called the first epistle of John. The second and third are clearly epistles. First John May not be actually an epistle, but more or less a, an essay or sermon. It lacks any specific personal um, addressees and so forth. But it is regarded by many as their favorite portion of the New Testament, the high ground in many respects. So uh, we're going. We're in First John, and we're going to pick up tonight in the second chapter. But First John. Remember, John wrote his gospel. That's really, in a sense, our past, our salvation. It's a done deal. Jesus' work on the cross was completed for on our behalf. John's letters is our present. That's our sanctification. They focus on our walk. And that's why it's so germane to each of us. It's going to surprise all of us to see how timely First John is to our time here right now. And, of course, our future. That was John's capstone work, the book of Revelation, And, of course, of his glorious appearing. And uh, so, be that as it may. Now, it's been called the Sanctum Centorum of the New Testament by many. It takes the child of God into the fellowship of the Father's home. Paul wrote epistles to the church. John is writing this to the family. John is presuming an intimacy more more close than most of the letters of Paul presume. And uh, Paul's epistles and all the other epistles are church epistles. But this is a family epistle. And it's going to be probably proved to be more significant, more relevant, more important to the individual believer than all the church epistles put together. Life is real. It's a battleground, not a playground. If a person is wrong about Jesus Christ, he is wrong about God. And if he's wrong about God, he is wrong about everything else. So that's really what we're all about here. So we're going to see in here there's uh, seven contrasts in the epistle of John. The light versus the darkness, the Father versus the world, Christ versus the Antichrist, good works versus evil works, Holy Spirit versus error, love versus pious pretense, and the God-born versus all the others. And that's somewhat the, uh, a, a, a topical structure of the, of the uh, epistle. There are seven tests. There's a test for profession There's a test of desire, there's a test of doctrine, there's a test of conduct, a test of discernment, a test of motive, and a test of new birth. Do you notice this heptatic structure? Everywhere we go, it's sevenfold. You also, you know that about the book of Revelation because it's very conspicuous. You don't notice it in his gospel, but it's there once you're sensitized to it. That's why many people suspect that his gospel and these letters were written after Patmos, but that's a speculation. But the heptatic structure is everywhere. we got seven traits of being born again. We've got seven reasons why this epistle was written. Seven tests of Christian genuineness. Seven tests of honesty and reality. And we have only six liars, fortunately. <laughs> why? Because lying isn't completed yet. It's, we're, we're inventing new ways to do that. called statistics. The, um, we'll notice that uh, of these heptads... Uh, why they were written, and tests of genuineness and of honesty. These, these, and and one of the six liars we'll all encounter in this session that we're getting into here. The six liars will be. It's the third one that we'll run into in this session. He that say, "If I know him and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him." And then there's there's three others that we'll encounter in subsequent sessions. But the spiritual fundamentals we're going to the all-inclusive commandments. Uh, we believe on Jesus Christ. That we love one another, and uh, all inclusive, and the profession of love for others, the Father sanctif- sacrificing for the Son, love's last word, and the perfect love casts out fear. These are all the key topics that are go- we're going to encounter. Now, John was writing at a time when the very deity of Christ was a major issue within the church. That may surprise us, but it is today also the deity of Jesus Christ. Many many pastors, many pulpits will extol his example, his his teachings. That's not the point. Who is he? He was God. That's the point. It's interesting to see how timely the scriptures are for us in our own times. These problems were not unique to John's time then. Yet his words are intimate and personal. He's going to deal with some very fundamental theology, but he's going to do it at a very personal basis. He's writing to the individual believer. He's writing to you personally here and with some very specific purposes in mind. I could put my tongue in my cheek and say, he invented the purpose-driven life. I'm sorry. Okay. Now, the first question, are you really saved? That's a question I think all of us have lurking in the back of our minds. How do you know if you are? Can you know if you are? Are you sure? See, it's not enough to claim that you're saved. You need to know that. You need to know that. Remember Matthew chapter 7 has a, three very disturbing verses. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, oh boy, I never knew you. Depart from me, that work iniquity. Those are terrifying words. Terrifying words. The Bible teaches that Christians can know that they are saved. Second Timothy 1, verse 12. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Whose, whose security am I depending on? His. His faithfulness. I know in whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. If it was in my hands I know I'd mess it up. I'm grateful that it's his commitment. In fact, it's the entire godhead is involved. And 1 John is going to we'll, we'll discover when we get to chapter 5 it says these things have I written unto you that ye believe on the name of the Lord Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. A very similar statement that he makes in his gospel. He he writes editorial pieces. These aren't unbiased narratives. They are op-ed pieces. John wrote his gospel that you might believe. He's written this epistle that you might know that you have eternal life. That's his goal. That's his objective. The word know is used 39 times in this book. And it refers to experiential knowledge. Chapter 2 is going to open with the same emphasis. Let's just jump in. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, he uses a term throughout this epistle called technia. And that really means my little born ones. Or my little born again ones, we might be tempted to say. The Scots have a term that comes really close. They call them barons. The born ones, you see. The barons. That's what this Greek term means. It's translated, my little children. My little barons, if you will. My my little born-again ones. These things I write unto you. Why? Why is he writing these things? That ye sin not. That's his purpose. That ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is reason number three of the seven that we looked at, why this epistle was written. There are seven of them. You can look them up at your leisure. The first three are, uh, are, are you know, uh, fellowship, joy, and now this one that she sin not to prevent sin. The Bible nowhere says that the Christian is sinless, but it does teach that the child of God ought to sin less. Okay, less today than yesterday. In other words, we can never lose our sin nature. Don't let anyone con you about that. We, we were born with that, but we need not. Obey its desires. If you're an unbeliever, you're in slavery to sin. If you're a Christian, you need not be. You have the resources to overcome. And we have an advocate with the Father. Paracletos is the term in the Greek. Same word that John uses for the Holy Spirit in John in his gospel, John in chapter 14 and 15. Our paraclete, our comforter, the one called alongside is what the word means. But we actually have two advocates. We have the one that indwells us, the Holy Spirit. But we also, Jesus himself, finished his work on earth and is presently interceding for us before the Father's throne. That's in John 17. It's also picked up by Paul in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He's our defense attorney. Well, can you imagine having an attorney like that? We have an aggressive adversary against us, the accuser of our brethren, we learn in Revelation 12. That's called Satan. That's what the word Satan means, by the way, our accuser. But we have a defense attorney, and he's got it wired with the judge. Okay. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Boy, are the Calvinists wishing that that verse wasn't in the Bible. Okay. Now, I'm not here to get into all of that, but just realize that this uh, this pulls the rug out from at least one of their tenets. He is the propitiation. There's that tough word, the satisfying of God's holy law, what the word, the fancy word means. In the book of Romans, it's hilasterion, meaning it refers to the mercy seat. But here the word is hilasterion, same root word, means of appeasing, a a, a propitiation for our sins. And uh, so, God is light and he cannot close his eyes to sin, but God is also love and love wants to save sinners. Therein lies the paradox. Even Socrates, in his writings, recognized the paradox we're dealing with here. He's recorded as saying, perhaps deity can forgive sinners, but I do not see how. how." That's a very perceptive statement. Because if God is just, what does he do about the sin problem? If he forgives the sin, that's violating his justice. that, That impugns his righteousness. And yet he loves sinners, okay? So that's the, how can God uphold his own justice and still forgive sinners? That's the dilemma that Socrates could not unravel. He did. He was perceptive enough to realize the paradox. Didn't have the answer. The answer is through the sacrifice of Christ. God himself paid the penalty. His son stepped in our shoes and paid it for us. The book of Romans is the definitive study on sin. That's why it's so fundamental in our studies. It's penalty and it's sins. It's penalty and it's remedy. And I'm very enamored with Cal Lindsay's acronym for grace because it's a very perceptive one. He argues that grace is an acronym for God's riches at Christ's expense. We win by what Christ has done, no question about that. But what you don't often realize, so did God. Because Christ made it possible for the Father to have fellowship with us without violating his righteousness because the price has been paid. God's riches at Christ's expense, we often don't think of that side of grace. The coin has two sides. It's certainly an enormous benefit to us as the beneficiary of that. But it may surprise us to consider the fact that God himself wins in the deal because he now can uh, fellowship with those whom he loves. John three sixteen. By the way, see the, the Calvinists uh, have a doctrine they call limited atonement that Christ only died for those that were saved. But that's contrary to the Scripture. By the way, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The text says that's a refutation of the concept of limited atonement. And I'm not gonna, I'm not going to get to the others. That's not, that's a whole nother to study. But just be aware of the fact that Christ died for all, even those that. Refuse him. He All he asks is that when we have failed, we confess our sins. We dealt with that last time. Remember, Christians bar of soap, First 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a precious verse. That's your memory verse from last time. I assume you've dealt with that. The main thing that John's going to argue here is that we need to manifest a serious and committed attitude that is consistent with God's view of sin. If you want to measure how spiritually mature you are, you simply need to measure how serious are you about sin. When you're as serious about sin as God is, that would be a level of maturity. Well, we got down to verse 3. We're making good progress here. And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. This is a widely misunderstood verse. We're in the family room here. We are in the family room here. This verse has nothing to do with the security of the believer. John is talking about assurance here. If we keep his commandments, the word keep there is terero, which means to guard something carefully, as you might do with a treasure, for example, to guard his commandments. The commandments do not refer to the Ten Commandments, by the way. Those are for unsaved. That's for the world. That was for Israel. in in, in Exodus 20. The commandments here are far more reaching than those, by the way, as Jesus amplifies in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. God has special commandments for His family. It's interesting, you have rules for strangers, but you also have different rules for members in the family. Some examples. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the lord jesus paul tells us in 1thessalonians 4 paul says in galatians 6 bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ we're going to look at a list of one another's here in a minute they're revealing i think very there are over 22 commandments in 1thessalonians 5 alone rejoice evermore pray without ceasing quench not the spirit You can go on through that chapter. Count them yourself. There's at least 22 of them. We can obey because we have to. That's what a slave does. We can obey because we need to, like an employee. Or we can obey because we want to. That's a love commitment. That's what he's after, obviously. If one is really saved, it's not simply a claim we make. It will result in an attitude of obedience in his or her heart. Obedience is the very basis of our assurance. Our assurance. This chapter includes the first of a series of tests. His phrase, he that saith, introduces a series of tests by which we can know beyond a doubt that we are a child of God. This will occur in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9 in tonight's lessons. Three tests, if you will. He that saith... I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Wow. This is one of the six liars then, huh? This is the third of the six liars. We ran into two of them last time. I love Sir Walter Scott's quote here. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we we practice to deceive. The life that is real cannot be built on things that are deceptive. Before we can walk in the light, we must know ourselves, accept ourselves, and yield ourselves to God. Know ourselves, accept ourselves, yield ourselves. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected or completed. Hereby we know, hereby know we that we are in him. How do we know this? Whoso keepeth his word. In verse 1, he spoke of his commandments. In general, that is. Here, he's speaking of his word. His word is more than just the commandments. Spurgeon summarizes, an unchanged life is a sign of an unchanged heart. Ooh, Amos 3.3, very commonly quoted. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Are you walking with God? If you're walking with God, you need to be in agreement with him. You need to have the same view of sin that he has. Ooh, that's a toughie. See, our keeping, that word that we we talked about, is an attitude of the heart. It's not a scorecard or a checklist. And this is the love of God perfected, completed in its goal. Have you taken a measure of your own spiritual inventory? Take out a pad and start here, huh? Do that on your time, but do it prayerfully. Take a measure of your own spiritual inventory. Well, what is your attitude towards sin? Let's start there. That's the primary yardstick. Do you compromise with it? Or are you serious about it? Are you as serious as God is about it? Are you in complete harmony with your father's attitude towards sin? And by the way, before you get too heavy on this one, let's realize that every one of us in this room are works in progress. Every one of us in this room are works incomplete God has not finished with any of us yet let's take that look but this is these are these are the directions that we should be working in verse 6 he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked even as he walked see the talk and the walk should coincide we often talk is so-and-so does he walk the talk first Peter 221. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps. Are you following Christ's steps? Are you leading a life of sacrifice on his part? Ephesians 5. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. Followers. The word is mimetis. It's to mimic. It's the word from which we get the word mimic. An imitator. We don't become Christians by following Christ's example, but after being born into... His family, we aspire to follow His example as our perfect pattern by abiding, meaning staying connected as a branch does to the vine, in fellowship with our source. Are you staying in connectivity with Him? Are you in the Word every day? John walked the talk, but he didn't always, by the way. It was not always thus. In fact, Jesus nicknamed the two brothers Bornerges, which is sons of thunder. He and his brother James and, and James and John were rowdies, sons of thunder. I'm sure when 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 the artists that always painted John in pictures, when they get to heaven, he's going to have words with them. Because he's always the, the medieval artists always painted him like as a almost effeminate. And I'm sure that. I'm sure he was just the opposite on one occasion these two brothers wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village in Luke chapter 9 gives you an insight no they didn't mess around could use them in Washington these days (laughs) testify you know I love peanut butter right some of you know me know I love peanut butter I love my wife Those aren't the same thing, are they? Obviously. See, words, like coins, can be in circulation for such a long time that they start wearing out. These words are so overused in so many contexts, they lack context, don't they? The word love has lost its precision and its depth in our culture. It does indeed cover a multitude of sins. They're saying that, that's a, there's a little pun there, but all right, let they go. See, the Greek has four words for love. Storge, which is affection love, like a parent towards a child. Phileo, which is the friendship love, having things in common, that sort of thing. Agape, the noun, is God's unconditional love. It's a noun only in the Bible. The verb agapeo means to be totally given over to. And people are totally given over to darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So the verb has wide application. The noun only used in the New Testament is one exception. The thing that proves a rule is a counterfeit. And there's one counterfeit of that example. But agape, the noun, is God's unconditional love. Eros, sexual, sensual love. You won't find that term in the New Testament. It's interesting that even the Greeks understood very clearly, that it was essential that Eros be bridled or restrained. They recognized that unbridled Eros was a disaster on a culture. That was interesting to realize that they had that perception. Now John has three contests we're going to deal with. He's going to describe a life that is real, and he uses three words repeatedly, life, love, and light. And what I'm going to invite you to do, you can jot these down, to read these three sections separately. 1 John 2, 7 through 11, we'll look at that here in this study, obviously. In a subsequent session, we'll be looking carefully at 1 John 3, uh, John 3 verses 10 to 24, and subsequently we'll look at 1 John 4, 7 to 21. We'll take just a quick glimpse at them now. It's going to become clear that love, life, and light cannot be separated. They're not the same thing, but they're at the same time, inseparable. Christian love is affected by light and darkness. That's what 1 John 2, 7 to 11, and we're going to be looking at that. Christian love is a matter of life or death. And that's what would be the main theme in 1 John 3, 10 to 14. See, to live in hatred is to live in spiritual death. And finally, Christian love is a matter of truth or error, as 1 John 4 will deal with. Because if we know God's love toward us, we show God's love toward others. That's the, that's the truth of it all. So in these three sections, we have three good reasons why Christians should love one another. Because God has commanded us to love. That's the the section we're going to be looking at. Because we have been born of God and God's love lives in us. And that's what John 3 is going to deal with. And God first revealed His love to us in 1 John 4.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 1, 2, 3 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.